We are in week three of our Blueprint series. We've been working our way through the memoirs of Nehemiah, this remarkable leader who is behind the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls. And if you've been tracking with our teaching over the course of the past couple of months, you'll know that we're kind of in season two of a two-part series. And a few weeks back, we were hanging out in Isaiah chapter 61, which is a really important passage of scripture for us as a community, but it was also the inauguration address that Jesus used at the start of his ministry. And in Isaiah 61, we were exploring this huge, holistic scope of God's kingdom, of what he is doing in the world as he restores, as he rebuilds, and as he renews all things. But through like season two, where we're finding ourselves now in blueprint, we're asking the question, how do we actually live this stuff out? In our daily lives, what does this actually look like? If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love you to turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. There's some Bibles around you. Um, it'll be page 329 um, if you've got the Bibles around you. Just keep it open the whole time. We're going to kind of dip in and dip out as we go. Um, we as a team believe that Nehemiah's memoir has so much to speak to us as a community at this moment. It actually offers us a bit of a blueprint of how we can practically order our lives to join in with what Jesus is doing in the world. Remember how we started this season off. There's no formula. There's no kind of two-step plan to all of this. What we're talking about is the big picture of what Jesus is doing in the world and how it intersects with our daily rhythms in our everyday lives. Let me start here. This September, I ran a marathon in Berlin. Um, in the 9.45, I got an applause because of that. So I'm like, thanks. You guys are so kind and so generous. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, there's me in the middle of the shot running a marathon. Now, running a marathon sounds pretty impressive, like so much so that whenever you say it, people automatically give you a round of applause. But um, i got to be honest, um, the camera really doesn't lie. My experience of running marathons is mostly being in and around the Belfast Marathon. I don't know if there's been anybody run the Belfast Marathon before. Anybody? Yeah. Yes, mate. Well done. I think you're the only one. That's two. <laughs> yeah, you guys just ran, like, kept on running legs and legs to get to 17 miles or whatever. Um, if you've been around the Belfast Marathon, you'll know that it's full of novelty runners. You know, men dressing up as grannies or, like, supermen or whatever. That's kind of the usual vibe. The Berlin Marathon, I didn't realize this at the time, is very different. It's one of six championship races where all of the pro marathon runners go and run, and this guy. Um, here's the thing. If you want to zoom in, you see this guy over here? He was the only novelty runner the whole time. <laughs> Erdinger man. Like, and I was running beside him. Like, so a marathon may sound pretty impressive. Trust me, it's really not. Whenever you're running alongside a blow-up beer bottle, um, you know that things aren't going pretty well. This is me at mile 23 in September in Berlin. I'm currently running through a world of pain. Like, up to 19 miles, things were going really, really good. I was kind of coming in under all of my split times. I was feeling really, really good. And then there was a water station incident. I walked in, walked out, couldn't really walk out. My knees buckled, and the rest of it was awful. Like, it was just horrendous. What I want you to notice, though, about this photo is all the people that I'm running with. Forget about Erdinger, man. I hate that guy. But for, like all these people over here, I don't know anybody in that photo. I don't know the names. I don't know where they've come from. 
I know none of them at all. During the same marathon, a very different race was happening. Do you want to flick on to the next slide, Josh? This is Iliad Kipchoge here um, on the right in the white jersey. That same day, the same race that I was running in, this guy ran pretty much twice as fast as I ran to beat the world record and to do it by 70 seconds. Came in like two hours, one minute. He's probably set to be the first human being to run a marathon under two hours. He is incredible. Now, I want you to notice this guy and then the three people who are running in front of him. These are his pacers, his friends from Kenya, people he would have trained with, people who he would have went to before the marathon and said, I'm going to run a world record time in Berlin. Are you with me? They would have responded, yep. I'm going to bust the gut to make sure that you do it. Kipchoge is a master. He's like a Zen master. He would have visualized every single street, every single corner, as he knew that he needed a team. Two very different races took place that day. And the difference between Kipchoge and myself, other than my love of carbs, is his choice to never go it alone. In the teaching text that Andy read earlier, we find Nehemiah arriving in Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it says that without letting anybody know, and I love this turn of phrase, what God had placed on his heart for Jerusalem, not just for himself, but for the city, he begins to inspect the ruined walls of the city by night. If you're wanting to know what it looks like to lead well in whatever environment you find yourself in, whether it's your family, whether it's a charity that you're involved in, whether it's your business, an area in our community, can I encourage you, look no further than Nehemiah. I would like genuinely encourage you to take some time, open up the scriptures, take an hour with a notepad, and just walk through this text. See how he led people. And then just make notes about how he did that and how you could begin to practice that in the environments that you find yourself in. I love his ability to inspire people to ask for it all, to manage big projects, and to deal with criticism. He is a genius. But I also love his ability to not rush into things. In verse 11 of chapter 2, we see that he rocked up to Jerusalem and took three really slow days without letting anybody know what God had planned for the city. He just kind of sat with its destiny, just kind of hung out with it. He, Jesus so often places people situations or circumstances on our hearts. And whenever the Lord speaks to us, we kind of, or if you're anything like me, I just want to tell everybody about it. And that's not a bad thing because it's really exciting to hear God speak to us. But there's something really, really wise about quietly contemplating what God has placed on our hearts for other people. To discern it, not with everybody, not with the masses, but with the ones and with the twos. Or as we read in the New Testament, to test the spirits. Because as we wait, we give space for this word, this picture, this vision to mature, to breathe a little bit. And God in that space begins to shape us and form us. He begins to illuminate different aspects of that word or vision that we didn't see in the first place. But as we wait, he very kindly provides pathways for us to make this a reality. I don't know about you, but I've been so stirred the past two weeks of teaching. I think Andy's done an amazing job um, over the past couple of weeks. 
particularly last Sunday, was really significant for me personally as I reflected on my life. And I know many of you have been doing the same as we've thought about this in-between space of waiting. This isn't a space to be feared. It's also not a space to think that we're there because we've done something wrong. It's also not a space for us just to kind of sit back and just check out and wait to do some stuff at some point in the future because we're invited to be fruitful even in the waiting. But it's in this in-between space, which is so critical and yet so overlooked, that character and capacity is formed in our lives so that we're able to carry the weight of all that God is wanting to do in and through our lives. If you missed last Sunday in particular, can I really encourage you to go and check out the podcast on our website? Like I heard one leader say this week, so often we take what God has placed into our hearts and we stick them in the microwave And yet time and time again, we find Jesus lifting our destinies out of the microwave and putting them back into the slow cooker. The most important leadership trait in Nehemiah, though, is his heart. Nehemiah doesn't arrive in Jerusalem like a removed consultant sent to get this project completed before moving on to the next one. Listen to him in verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Nehemiah doesn't lead as some kind of detached project manager. Instead, he leads as a father in this moment. He identifies himself with the rest of the people. There's no them and I whenever it comes to Nehemiah. There's only we and there's only us. He identifies with these people as if they were his own family. A little bit of solidarity goes a long, long way. And the people of Jerusalem, they can't help but not just hear this, but feel this. As soon as they hear these words, they just respond, all right, let's start rebuilding. As we journey through Nehemiah, it's really important to see two things at play. Firstly, commitment. And secondly, community. This is all I want to unpack with you this morning. Commitment and community. Because whenever these two dynamics come together, so often they cause an acceleration in the movement of the kingdom of God. Nehemiah was fully committed. He took the responsibility upon himself to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Every step of the way, he could have thought, you know, somebody else is going to do this. He was living 846 miles away in Susa, And he could have thought, hey, somebody actually who lives in Jerusalem will be able to do this. But no, he committed himself fully, taking responsibility upon himself. And yet this commitment was coupled with a sense of community. He didn't rock up to Jerusalem, rolled up his sleeves and thought, hey, it's all down to me. No, he knew that a dream, a destiny as large as rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem would would require a community to work together. He chose to never go it alone. Commitment and community. And today, I reckon more than ever, it is becoming harder and harder to live in the ways of commitment and community. And that is because of two things. The fear of missing out and the big me. Now, I hate speaking in generalizations, but I'm a preacher, so I'm going to go for it. And with what I'm about to say it could be really easy to dismiss it and think, hey, that's got to do with somebody else, that's got to do with big picture of culture, not really relevant to me, or probably what most of us will think whenever we hear this, that's just got to do with the kids and got nothing to do with me. But if I'm to be really honest with you before I unpack this, 
I am finding in my own life and in my own heart that I am increasingly drawn to FOMO and the living towards the way of the big me. And it's distracting me all of the time in really subtle ways from living in the direction of God's kingdom. Let me explain. It's really hard to live a committed life whenever you're constantly in fear of missing out. Today, there is a super abundance of things to do. There are places to see, there are shows to watch, there's food to eat, there's foods to Instagram, there's people to meet, there's experiences to be had. My Amazon wish list is bonkers. I've got like 150 books in one. I've got like 200 records in another. It is crazy. And I do love it. I love that we get access to so much. And yet, I don't know about you, but I am becoming more and more hungry to seize every single opportunity and to taste every single new experience. Whether you know it or not, the control center, the hub of your discipleship, your formation, who you're becoming in your body is not up here. It's kind of more like this sort of area, your heart, your stomach, and your gut. Information, thinking, theology will not shape you. It won't even disciple you. But what you long for, what you hunger for, what you desire and thirst does shape you. The question isn't whether or not you're being discipled. The question is who or what are you being discipled by? We are being discipled by our hungers, by our thirsts, and by our loves. That is a really good thing. That is a natural thing. It's a question of which direction is it going in. It's really interesting to me because as the world becomes more polarized, so are our desires. We either really hate something now or we absolutely love it. There's no in-between space of kind of, remember liking things? We don't really do that anymore. We either love it or we hate it. There's no space in between. And with there being so much that we love in the world, we feel as if we've got to be a little bit more loose, a little bit more flexible, always available. And so it's becoming harder and harder to commit to one particular thing because something else might crop up and then we've got to go and do that thing instead. Whether we realize it or not, we are being shaped and transformed by FOMO. David Brooks puts it like this, we are terrified of missing out on anything that looks exciting, but by not renouncing any of them, we spread ourselves thin. What's worse, we turn ourselves into goody seekers, greedy for every experience and exclusively focused on self. If you live in this way, you turn into a shrewd tactician, making a series of cautious semi-commitments without really surrendering to one larger purpose. You lose the ability to say a hundred no's for the sake of one overwhelming and fulfilling yes. Here's the thing. The large purpose of joining in with Jesus in his kingdom restoration project requires commitment. It, re it requires taking responsibility, and it means that we as the people of God are going to have to say no sometimes to some things. We also need to be really aware of the draw towards the big me. Turn with me to chapter 3. And as you turn, just begin to glance down it. Begin to look at it, its shape, the names in it, and what they're doing. In 1950, the polling organization Gallup asked a bunch of American high school seniors if they considered themselves to be a very important person. At that point, now remember, this is the post-war generation, at that point, 12% of people said yes. 
The same question was asked by Gallup in 2005. Now, we're a long way from 2005. Do you remember the crazy frog? You're welcome. Um, also, Facebook had just started in 2004, so we were all on Bebo. Do you remember Bebo? Or MySpace, if we were hipsters at the time, right? Um, same question, am I a very important person, was asked in 2005. It wasn't 12% who said that they were, it was 80%. 80%. Now, here's the thing. It's really easy to dismiss that. I was 17. I was a high school senior whenever that question was being asked as were many of you. That group of young people in 1950 were really comfortable living in the way of the small me. Essentially, I'm really happy to play my small role in a much bigger purpose, but by the noughties, we saw a huge shift from the small me to the big me. No longer was it a question of how important is our cause, but instead, how important am I? In chapter three, we find a list of the rebuilders of Jerusalem's walls. If you read the, few, read the full list, you'll probably start off reading a few, get down to maybe chapter 3, you begin to skim read a little bit. By verse 11, you're kind of like, I'm completely done. I really like my new job, so I didn't get Andy to read chapter 3 today because that would be horrendous to try to read. This is a list of names and a bunch of people who don't get singled out, people that we don't know doing jobs that we'll never get to do, yet they committed themselves to a purpose that was so much bigger than themselves. No one person is singled out. Let me ask you a question, pretty deep one, maybe a raw one. Are you satisfied to have your name on a long list of fellow contributors, or are you wanting to be singled out? Because here's the thing, the most dynamic the most sustainable and the most fruitful movements of the kingdom are realized in commitment outworked through communities. And yet as FOMO and the big me become so much more prominent around us, but most importantly, become so much more prominent in our own hearts, the virtues of commitment and devoting ourselves to community, they will not come easy. We need to allow them to be formed and to be shaped in us. And we need to exercise those muscles. And the best place to do that is in the gymnasium of the local church. Chapter three may be a long list of unknown names, but every time I bump up against it, I am just moved by it because it was nothing short of miraculous. Remember the time that we're living in, the lack of technology that was going on. Also, these people are just beaten up. They're just empty, spiritually empty. They've got no sense of vision. And this rebuilding project would have meant restoring over a mile's worth of wall four feet thick, 15 to 20 feet all the way around. It took them seven weeks. And what I love about this account was the broad spectrum of people who came together for one common purpose. There were women, there were men, there were families that came together, there were priests, there were rulers of districts, there were tradesmen, there were artists, there were servants, there were goldsmiths and perfume makers. There's people from nearby towns, they all got to work. Everybody mucking in, everybody doing their part. And Nehemiah, being the genius that he was, he divided the work up so that each person or small group of people would be responsible for a small part of the wall that was directly opposite the place that they lived or the place that they worked. It's just genius. Everybody took responsibility for their patch. Each person had their own section to build, 
and yet they would have been connected to the next person and to the next person after that. There would be no gaps in this wall. Listen to the refrain of chapter 3, next to them and next to them and next to them. Everybody had their own section, their own part to play, yet every section was integrated, connected. Everybody was interdependent. There were no gaps. Everyone was equal. Regardless of what they did, their vocation, the skills that they brought to the table, everyone is equal and everybody is listed in chapter 3. And this is exactly how the church should work. We are to be a people who are to take ownership of our section of the wall. You can put some more language to that. We are to be those who are committed to our destiny or what God has placed in our heart. Even it might be helpful to say we are to be committed to our vocation, which as Buchner calls it, is the place where our deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And yet, we are to be connected to each other through the collective dream of God as he rebuilds, as he renews, and he restores all things. We are to be committed to our section and yet we are to be woven together in community, holding these things in tension. If it was us writing Nehemiah chapter 3 today, it may sound a little bit like this. There is a small band of brothers and sisters who long to see the eradication of domestic violence in the Ligon Valley region. They went for it. They committed themselves. And next to them was a band of songwriters of worship leaders who wanted to draw God's people into his presence. And next to them were the business owners who wanted to ensure that nobody would be unemployed in our city. And next to them were the preachers. And next to them were the sports people. And next to them were the farmers. And next to them, the designers. And next to them, the people who serve every Friday morning in tots and toast. And next to them, and next to them, and next to them. Each committed to your section, yet woven together in community. Paul says something remarkable in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. The question I want to ask today is, do you believe that to be true? Because the thing is, many of us actually don't think like Christians whenever it comes to that question. Many of us think like theists. Atheists don't believe in God. Theists believe that there could be a God, but he's kind of detached. Christians believe something very different. Listen to this quote from Father Ronald Rollheiser. A theist believes in a God in heaven, whereas a Christian believes in a God in heaven who is also physically present on this earth inside of human beings. God is still present as physical and as real in this moment today as God was in the historical Jesus. I'll let that sit for a second. God still has skin human skin, and physically walks on this earth just as Jesus did to pray, God, please help my neighbor cope with her financial problems, or God, do something about the homelessness downtown is the approach of a theist and not a Christian. God has chosen to express love and grace in the world through us, through those of us who embody Jesus. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Now, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 on how the body of Christ is to be organized is the best way, I think, of describing how we are to function as a local church. Focusing on our individual section of the wall, yet woven together in community. Now, I'm just going to let this text speak for itself. I'm not really going to 
I'm just going to read it out. Um, I'm also going to read it through the words of the late and great Eugene Peterson. It'll be on the screen. You can follow with me. Your body has many parts, limbs, organs, and cells, but no matter how many parts you can name, you're still one body. It's exactly the same with Christ. By means of his one spirit, we all said goodbye to our partial and our piecemeal lives. We each used to independently call our own shots, but then we entered into a large and integrated life in which he has the final say in everything. I want you to think about how this makes you more significant and not less. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If the body was all eye, how could it hear? If all ear, how could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this, make, sorry, how this keeps your significance from getting blown up into self-importance. No matter how significant you are, and it is only because of what you are part of. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and in its proper place. No part is important on its own. Can you imagine eye telling hand, get lost, I don't need you, or head telling foot, you're fired, Donald Trump style, your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and therefore necessary. When it is a part of your own body that you're concerned with, it makes no difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor, just as it is without comparisons. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than for the higher. The way God designed our bodies our actual, physical, embodied selves is a model for understanding our lives together as Lagan Valley Vineyard. Every part dependent on the other part. You're Christ's body, church. That is who you are. You must never forget this. Only as you accept your part of that body does your part mean anything. Two things. Own your part and never ever go alone. Own your part. What is your section of the wall? What part of the body are you? What, as Nehemiah puts it, what has God placed on your heart? What we've loved, I was even speaking to somebody in between the two gatherings this morning, is as we've been teaching this and as we've been asking these kinds of questions over the past couple of weeks, some of you are hearing really clearly from God for the first time or being reminded of what your part of the wall is. I love that and that is so good. Continue to have that conversation with Jesus, continue it with prayer and continue to have that conversation with others. But for some others of us, and I want to say this really, really gently this morning. We have got to stop downplaying our part in the kingdom. And we need to begin to own our part in the body of Christ. Some of us have got caught up in this unhealthy trap of comparison. We see other people stepping into the things of God. We hear them articulate their destiny. And we think to ourselves, well, if that is what we're talking about here, well, I'm not like them, so I must be out. And in doing that, we disqualify ourselves. It's like a foot saying, well, I'm not a hand, so I can't be part of this body anymore. That is a lie. And it's tripping some of us up way too much. You, each of you, has a unique contribution to the kingdom-building project of Jesus. 
But they said, I'm going to see thousands of people come to faith. I'm going to transform an industry. But that's definitely not me, so I must be out, right? Listen, that is amazing for those people. There are people like that in this room, and we are championing them, and we are cheering them on. But for some of us, our section of the wall is actually right in front of us already. It could even be something that we're already doing in our daily lives, and we just need to continue in it whether it's raising our children so that they grow up to know the love of Jesus, whether it's continuing to live free from addiction, whether it's being quietly generous, sharing the good news of Jesus, not with thousands, but with one person, or being that person who gets on their knees and prays for people every single day. Whenever it comes to the economy of the kingdom, those sections of the wall that we downplay, that we think are really insignificant, they're actually not just equal to the big things, but actually, as it says in 1 Corinthians, 12, they are seen with greater honor and greater dignity without any sense of comparison. God has carefully placed each of us, you and me, exactly where he wants us to be. He's positioned you. He's placed people and circumstances and situations into your heart. And we just need to stop listening to the lies of comparison and tune into the truth of how his glorious body works. We've got to own our part, but we're also to never go it alone. No part is important on its own. And in the age of the big me, we can be tempted just to go after our own thing, even though they may be the things of God. We may be committed to them, but we may want to do them by ourselves, for ourselves, disconnected with the other rebuilders of the wall. Let me just tell you this. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It'll be like running a marathon for 19 miles. It's going great. You're thinking the sun is on your back and you're going at full tilt and everything is brilliant, but then you hit a water station and you have to walk out of it and you realize that your knees don't really work anymore. You will begin to flag if you live in that particular kind of way. We are to never, ever go this alone. We are to be those who submit our personal vision into the collective dream of Christ's body to be able to be content and satisfied, to know that we have been faithful and done a good job whenever our name is on a long list of other people with no selfish ambition and no vain conceit. The scale of what Jesus is wanting to do through his kingdom requires each of us to live into our sections of the wall and to do it together. Each of us committed to our part and woven together in community. And whenever we live in that particular kind of way, miracles happen. Let me grind this for us as I come into land. What does this look like actually in reality? How can we live in this way as being the body of Christ where we're woven together, going after our things, but also being one team? How do we live out commitment and community? Very simple. Friendship. We want to get really practical in this series, um, and I don't think we can get more practical than the foundational relationships in our lives. In the Celtic tradition, there's a beautiful understanding of friendship. It's known as Anam Kara. It means soul friend. John O'Donoghue puts it like this. Anam Kara was originally someone to whom you confessed revealing the hidden intimacies of your life. Let me just pause there. We're not talking about the bad stuff that you've done. We're talking about the destiny that God has placed in your heart. With the Anam Kara, you could share your innermost self, your mind and your heart. 
This friendship was an active recognition and belonging. This art of belonging awakened and fostered a deep and special companionship. The Anamkara isn't just any old mate that you've got. It's not going to be all of your friends, but it's someone with whom two things can go on, confiding and championing. Josh, flick back to the photo, could you? Back to Berlin. There would have been a moment before the Berlin Marathon whenever Kipchoge would have pulled together his pacers. He would have confided in them and he would have said, fellas, I think I'm going to run two hours, one minute. I think I'm going to break the world record time. In response, his team would have gulped, would have listened. They would have said, thank you. And then they went out and they busted a gut to make sure that he was able to do what he set out to do. As you commit yourself to your section of the wall, whatever it may be, can I really encourage you to draw around you a small group of Anamkara, a small group of soul friends, a team of pacers, if you will, who will be able to go with you, confide in them. These are people who are able to confide in with the things that Jesus is inviting you into, Often these things are hidden, they're kind of deep, they're a bit intimate. And sometimes whenever it comes to us speaking about our destiny, it can feel as if we're saying things that actually are impossible. And just a heads up, confiding does feel more like confession. Kind of, we get a little bit sweaty whenever we talk about this kind of stuff. Our lips begin to quiver. Sharing the big dreams of God can be a little bit awkward sometimes. And yet whenever we do that with the right people, what we'll see is championing begins to happen. Those friends will hear you, they'll thank you, and they'll become your biggest champions. They'll go with you wherever you go. They may not roll up their sleeves and do the digging in your section of the wall, but they'll be right there encouraging you, praying for you, picking you up whenever you're down. They'll resource you along the way. For me, Developing this Anamkara structure around my life has been critical. And to speak personally, I've got a small group of soul friends. They know who they are. And there's my wife, there's Emma, there is my spiritual director who's actually here this morning. He doesn't like me calling him my spiritual director, but you can suck it. Um, There's also a small group of friends, people who are in this room and other people who are part of different contexts, who have gathered around me, who are committed to me and what I am committing to. I can't live without that. I can't go after the things of God without these people. I have confided in them. I have cried with them. I have laughed with them. I've celebrated with them. I have got angry. I've even swore with them a couple of times. I have been through the mill with them, and yet they're still with me. They've still got my back, and they're going with me. They pray for me all the time. They ask me really, really good questions, and they're willing to listen to me. And here's the thing. I know that wherever Emma and I go, they're going to be right there with me. You need to have friends in your life for banter, for distraction, and all of that. But if you're serious about the things of God, you need to have people in your lives who are going to be able to sustain you on this journey as you live in the direction of the kingdom. So let me ask you, who could be the two, three, four people in your life who you'll be able to confide in, but also the people who then could go and champion you? Who could be your soul friends? Your Anam Kara. 
And I mean this not just as like, I'm just going to fire this out here and then move on. I'm actually serious about this question. Who could these people be in your life? For some of you, there are people kind of dropping into your head, people who are already, like spouse is a really important person as your your Adam Cara. There could be others who are just kind of coming in and they're obvious, but there could be others of like, actually, I need to go away and think about this. Regardless of whether there are people in your life already or you need to go away and think about this, who are those people going to be? Who are those people going to be in your lives? Now, this isn't just like a small group resource that we're going to give to you. This is a way of life. This is what we're talking about. This is the Celtic way of doing this. Now, doing this for the first time can be a little bit awkward. So here's a few top tips. Um, Don't go like this. Um, Hey, I know we're friends, but can we be more than friends? That's not a good line to use, (laughs) all right? Don't, Don't use that, please for the sake of everybody involved. I don't want to get any, I really don't want to get emails off the back of that. Um, It's going to be awkward asking people to do this, so feel free at any stage to use me as a little bit of a buffer. Stu was talking about this thing in church, and I think Stu's kind of right, but it's a bit awkward, so Stu wants me to do this, so will you do that thing that Stu said? You feel free to use me as a kind of little bit of a buffer in the awkwardness of this. But whatever you do, be really proactive Be really intentional. Say to the person, I want you to be this for me. Will you be this for me? Look them in the eyes and ask them. And as you get into the rhythm of it, make sure that it's consistent. Every couple of weeks, every couple of months, book times in where you're able to meet with these people, talk with them and chat it through. Particularly if you are in a group of mates who have been mates for a really long time. Um, Can I really encourage you to go after this? Actually, to take this really, really seriously, to make this a marker of your friendship, not just getting together for a laugh on a Saturday, but actually going after the things of God. Of course, continue to do those things. Don't take yourselves so seriously, but keep living into this kind of way. It'll be awkward. You'll be vulnerable. But confessing the things that Jesus is inviting you into with the right people, with the right pacers, with the right Anamkara will sustain you along the way. As you commit fully to all that Jesus is inviting you into, may we be woven together in community. And may we fully commit ourselves to our section of the wall. But may we never, ever go it alone. Let's stand together.